Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert, and today's moment is from the cantata Wacket Auf, BWV 140, from the opening chorus. Tell us about this. Okay, well, I chose Wacket auf, ruft uns die Stimme. It is based on an old hymn tune, which was not written by Bach. So, one thing that we should say about Bach is just that he wrote tons of music that was completely original, and that he also wrote tons of music that was based on old tunes, and these were usually Lutheran hymn tunes. And imagine being in church and hearing this music that was arranged by Bach, you would hear a lot of original sounding things, but in interspersed in there, and really at the core of what you were hearing, you would hear a recognizable tune. And I think that would have been a nice uh, experience, kind of like going to a concert by a band that you like, but not really, because then you, you're expecting that exact arrangement, right? But more like going and seeing a cover version of a song that you really like. And in this particular cantata, he takes that melody from this Wacket Auf hymn tune. And he takes that and he puts it in three different places and kind of weaves it within there. One thing I really love about this melody is it has a really pleasing structure to it. So the tune has 12 lines, yeah, 12 lines to it. And the first three are like a nice little pleasing thing where the third one lands back down at the starting note again. Um, so it kind of has this arch structure. It goes up and then lands back down. And that takes three lines to do it. This is what the melody sounds like. And then the second line. And then the third line. Then it does those three lines again. Then for the last six lines of the of the melody, it just kind of keeps getting shorter and shorter little phrases until the end, which has a repetition of the same material. So what I would encourage you to do with this is I think it would be better to actually listen to it in reverse order. I would say go to the video by Netherlands Bach Society, which we will link, and listen to the last movement first and then listen to the middle movement, or it's the fourth movement. You listen to that one second, and then you listen to the first movement last. <laughs> and if that sounds confusing to you, don't worry. It'll be a little more obvious when you actually see it on the, on the video page. And you will hear that melody in all three of those movements, all three of those choral movements in this work. The thing that you heard, the moment that I love, comes from the very first movement. But like I said, I think that's the most complicated. So it's best if you listen to this ending chorale first, which sounds a little bit like this. Mm -hmm. 
So I was also going to say, Alex, that this is typical of a Bach cantata in that the last movement is a simple harmonization of the tune by itself. And that's why Alex is saying that, it's, that this is the easiest way to listen to it. And you'll just hear the melody on the top, the soprano has the melody. And then Bach's creative arrangements of this tune happen at the beginning with the first movement and then in the middle with the fourth movement. And the musical moment that we're looking at today is from the first movement. Although that fourth movement is certainly the most famous part of this work of music, isn't it? It is. And when you listen, like I mentioned, I think that's the one to listen to second. When you hear that, you might recognize it. It frequently makes those lists of most beautiful uh, classical pieces of music. And it, you can see why here. A great thing to listen for in this movement is the bass line against the violin line. One time listen to it, just listen for that violin melody right at the beginning of the movement. Then the next time you listen to it, try and listen just for the bass line. It's interesting what happens with the interplay there. It's very typical of Bach and composers of this period to have a bass line and then an instrumental obbligato line, which means like a written out instrumental part that would play and then, after that first little melody is established, then the choir or solo voice will come in and sing the familiar tune. And that's exactly what happens here in this movement. So what you just heard there was the tenor voices singing this tune, the tune that we recognize from earlier. And what you heard the violins doing was something completely original written by Bach that starts like this. So that little bit was completely original by Bach, but he's figured out how to weave that in there really nicely. You also heard the bass instruments. And if you were listening really closely, you heard some other instruments, harpsichord, organ, in there. This would have just been improvised. If you uh, know anything about jazz, it's kind of like jazz, really. In jazz music, you see symbols on the page telling you what chords to play. Not every note is written out all the time. And you're expected to just kind of put those chords wherever they belong properly. And really, Baroque music is a lot like that. And I think in a future episode, we'll talk a little bit more about that, which is called Basso Continuo. It's kind of a cool little thing, but we'll skip that for now. So this beautiful movement in the middle of this work is the most famous. But now let's go to the opening chorale, the one that I picked out for our moment of Bach today. Now, in the first movement, the melody is always sung by the soprano voices, 
so it's the highest voice you hear, and always in long tones, and then the lower voices are singing some faster material underneath. Wake, arise, the voices call us, of watchmen from the lofty tower. Wake up, O town Jerusalem. It's worth giving a short explanation of what this piece was written for. It is about the end times. Although we are coming at it here in the, a little bit late, but kind of in the season of Advent, because it works both ways. What it is about is Jesus' return, specifically Jesus' second coming, using imagery of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. And the idea here is that the watchmen on the lofty heights, otherwise known as the angels here, are announcing Jesus' imminent return and saying, let's get ready for the wedding feast. We talked a little bit, I'm jumping in to say, we talked a little bit about, in the last episode, a similar theme when we looked at the cantata Nun kommt der Heidenheiland, in that that is an Advent cantata. Advent is the church season of preparing for what is about to be the birth of Jesus Christ. There's also a second related theme of the second coming of Christ, too. So that's kind of what you could do here, too. You could definitely use this music to be Advent music, even though it was written as end of the church year, church music about the end of time could also be sort of the beginning of Christ as well. Right. I have two hymnals right here on the piano. They both have this tune in it. One of them has it in the end times section of the hymnal and the other one has it in the advent section so yeah and also it's the king of chorales i forgot to say that before but it's kind of known as that philip nikolai was the one that um, wrote this originally and he's got two very famous ones this one and oh morning star which is known as the queen of chorales so what a lucky guy to have those monikers attached to two (laughs) two really well-known hymn tunes that he wrote so like i said in Bach's day, they would have known these hymn tunes yeah. by Nikolai, which is what would have made this really special to hear. On the 27th Sunday after Trinity Sunday, which is when this cantata was written for, which is another fun, weird fact, because that puts it around the end of November, which would have been right before Advent. So that works in the church year. It, that's a Sunday where we focus on the end times. And then we start over the church year at Advent, starting over before Jesus' birth. But because of the way the calendar shakes out, you don't always get that 27th Sunday. So this beautiful, wonderful work that Bach wrote really wouldn't have been able to be used again the next year or I think even the next year. And I think it was pretty unusual for that Sunday to crop up, which just goes to show you again that Bach wrote this music very pragmatically. He just wrote for what he was writing for that Sunday. It was for that. It was for church. And if it got used again later, great. But Some of that stuff didn't really even get saved that well. And he liked to reuse a lot of material too. But it was pragmatic and it was just, let's get some really good music done for this Sunday. Yeah, he reused a lot of stuff, but he also wrote a lot of new stuff. And he also wrote a lot of stuff that we don't even have because it was lost. So it's a crazy thing to think about how much we have so much of him. And yet there's still so much that we don't have. Yeah. So when we listen to this moment that I picked out, The reason, after all this introduction to what this is about, 
really the reason I love this moment is because of something that I talked about on episode one, which was a moment where the bass instruments drop out and we hear this soaring, lifting, almost flying sound of these other um, instruments and voices floating above. And then when the bass comes back in, it's just very satisfying. It is a really magical moment. We talked about this melody having 12 lines. Well, this is on the fifth line where the words, the translation of the German is, they call to us with ringing voices. So you're imagining this lovely music being played and sung by an angelic chorus and band. But when we get to this line, all the bass instruments drop out and we just hear these soaring, soaring voices above us. a really nice imagery throughout this whole cantata of a wedding feast you know like there's this great uh, analogy throughout that the bride is the church and the groom is jesus christ and he's coming to the wedding and there's like a uniting that happens between them and it's a theme that goes through the cantata the whole thing all seven parts and it also is uh here right here that what alex is talking about this very beginning section as well yes so some of those middle movements that are duets are a duet between the church and Jesus. So now that I've told you the order in which to listen to the chorale movements, after you do that, I mean, it's worth listening to the whole thing all the way through in order. Oh, yeah. I just did that today. Again, I re-listened to this. Uh, of course, the Netherlands Bach Society one, and it's just so high quality. So I really, as we always do on this podcast, I really encourage you to go check it out. I think this is a favorite cantata of a lot of people. I know a few composers I've studied with who is their favorite as well. Probably their, their number one favorite. And it's up there for me too. It's hard to say. But definitely, I would... Yeah, king of chorales. Maybe maybe also the king of cantatas. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, it's definitely up there. It's definitely been my favorite at some point. It's great. It's got a lot of complexity to it, but it's also just so beautiful. Uh, the, I think John Elliott Gardner, one of the premier sort of conductors of Bach music, called that middle movement... Uh, he used the word mellifluous. It had mellifluous beauty. It's a That's a vocab word, you know, that's like, but it's kind of fun to be able to use a word like that, which means, I believe it just means really pleasing sounding. Mm. And yeah, I guess it's appropriate to use a uh, kind of complex word to describe the music of Bach, which is very complex. Yeah, but it's, we can think of Bach as like this technical master, but then he just wrote the, such sublime melodic lines for the instruments and voices. That's in this the, case, that's, the instruments. Yeah, that's the joy of Bach, right? It's it's so there's so much to dig into if you're a real music nerd about the complexity of everything. But it's also completely possible to enjoy it on any level, including the level of complete emotionalism. You don't have to be analyzing this music. It's so gorgeous on the on its own. Yeah, sometimes when we think of old music, we think that it's very square, but that's true of some styles of old music, maybe Renaissance, high Renaissance music, but Baroque music is intensely emotional. And that was even true of church Baroque music, like this one, like this piece. Yeah, and to that point, you should totally check out the translation of the German words of this as you listen. If you can find online, very easy to find it if you just search for it. And you'll see what we mean. There's text from Song of Solomon in there, which is about marriage. And he uses it, like I said, to talk about Jesus and the church. But it's very emotional, very moving. 
And Alex, you also pointed out to me that in the Netherlands Bach Society performance of Vakatov in, in this first movement, they do a really cool thing the second time that we noticed with their performance with the dynamics. They get really soft on that one line. It's really interesting. Yeah, and that's probably why I honestly why I chose this moment because this recording specifically has a very special moment, like you said, on that second time. And it's just beautiful. And now, here is the opening chorus moment from the Vakatov Cantata. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see its performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Okay, Christian, what moment are we going to look at next time? We're going to look at the opening at the very beginning of the Magnificat. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Okay. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Mm